Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dine with the Divine. So I'm your host, Ashley, and today we'll be exploring the magical and the mystical and everything in between. So on today's episode, we're going to talk ancestral lineages and a mouthy woman who saved a whole kingdom. So I'm so excited for today's guest. I'm just generally excited that anybody wants to talk to me. So this is also awesome. Um, <laughs> today we have Ben Stimson. He is a therapist, lecturer, student, and spiritual director. Ben has developed courses on a variety of topics, including ancestral veneration, the power of story, and folklore. When not working with clients or writing, Ben is engaged with his areas of study, religious studies, medieval and classical studies, folklore, and spirituality. Hi, Ben. How are Hello. you? I'm great. I've been looking forward to this, to be honest. How are you? Yay, me too. I'm doing well. The first thing I wanted to ask you was mm -hmm. how how did all of this start to interest you? When did you start getting interested in folklore and medieval studies and all this and spirituality? Just let me hear your story. Yeah, for sure, definitely. I live in Canada right now. I'm about an hour. I'm up on Lake Huron, so I'm about two hours from Toronto. But you can tell from my accent, I'm not actually originally from North America. So originally <laughs> from from the UK, I'm from North Wales, and I moved over when I was eight, eight years old. So it really does tie. It's strange how all these threads connect, but it really does tie into my ancestral work. So I came yeah. over, and having such a distinct disconnection from my home culture from that sense of home especially as a kid I, I often like I was dealing with major culture shock I've really come to understand that really was what I was dealing with was culture shock because North America was so different eight and a half years old is old enough to still remember home and yeah. also young enough that I, that I didn't understand or have any control over that movement so I really gravitated towards um, fairy tale and folklore and stories of like King Arthur and Avalon and, and fairy tales of North Wales. I'm originally from North Wales, okay. which would be like, it would be like the distinction between North Wales and England would be like if people from New York or from New Jersey, where you're from, suddenly mm -hmm. moved to Vermont, right? That's yeah. how dark of a difference it is, right? And so mm -hmm. it was a really rugged landscape. I was an hour from the mountains and it was just a, a wonderful, magical place. And then I came to Canada and I was suddenly very different. I was, mm -hmm. I had an accent. I didn't understand the culture. I didn't make any friends. So a mm -hmm. lot of my friends were um, mythological characters and fairy tales and whatnot. And so that's really where my love of folklore started. And that's actually where my spirituality started. I'm mm. 36. So when I was about, what, how old? About 12, 13, I watched The Mists of Avalon for the first time. I don't know if you ever saw yeah, you, yeah. I, I don't think I've ever seen it, but I know I've read one or two books like that are about it, yeah. The books I read later on, there was mm -hmm. a, like a TNT miniseries, which was okay. like made-for-TV movie miniseries. And it had uh, Angelica Houston and Juliana Margolis and a couple oh, of other books. yeah, I did see yes, it. Yes, yeah, you yeah, remember yeah. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I did watch that, yeah. <laughs> it's such a hokey movie watching it now. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> but it was it was cool. It was cool, especially for... I, at that time, I was also starting to realize I was gay. I was mm -hmm. a queer person. And, and so being different in so many different ways, I really gravitated towards 
this image of a religion because I, I grew up in a town of about eight thousand people and there were like eighteen mm. churches and and okay. I didn't sense that any of them wanted me. Yeah. Uh, so that's really where all that started, all commingled I, because I was queer and because I literally had rocks thrown at me when I was a kid. I I, I see childhood trauma coming up. I told you it yeah. would come up. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, we're all about it on this podcast. Share your feelings. Yeah. <laughs> so that's really where my solace was. And then I found, I started getting into Wicca and neo-paganism and, and that's where the spirituality piece came in. And then in university, the first time around, I was studying social work. And so the kind of a psychological piece came into it. Mm-hmm. I was also very deeply interested in religious studies. So I, I ended up dropping out of school originally. Mm. And I've only just gone back into school in the past two years and I'm almost close to finishing, but I've revamped because I have all my training that I need for therapy. I revamped it to focus on medieval studies, classical studies and folklore, religious studies, all of those things intermingle, all of those things build from each other. A lot of what we would look at as neo-paganism in, in, in the West now, when ignoring all the cultural appropriative bits, it really comes from that medieval age. And so understanding the medieval age was something I was really interested in. So it's all connected, all connected. And then the ancestor piece comes in because I was missing home. I was literally physically distanced from my ancestors. Oh. I, d- I didn't have a sp- I didn't have a chance to really go and visit the places of burial or the old places where they resided or anything like that. And so story became powerful for me because all of that information, all that history, all those relationships were suddenly in my head. And that's where story exists. So I, it's hard to explain it all because it's all sorts of interconnections, but that's where I'm at. I love every part of that. So <laughs> I know. So I'm going to start out with the first. Are you even spiritual if you don't have childhood trauma? I don't. <laughs> I don't. I totally feel you. I was bullied also when I was a kid. And like it, it does make you reach somewhere inside yourself. Like. Yes. Because you're just like, I guess it's just me out here. Like, I'm the only one I can rely on. And it sucks. But it is good when you get older and then you find your people. But I totally feel you about that. Oh, God. And I, so you were actually born in a different place. My parents are just from different countries. And I feel Mm. totally, I feel very similar to you. I feel like I grew up like looking for like I didn't fit in ever like my dad had a funny accent and and I ate like smelly foods and like all that kind of stuff I was constantly reaching for other places and like my ancestry because I was like these I feel like I don't I'm in a strange country I was born here in the United States but I'm like I feel like a stranger in a strange land and I still yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I, that's the thing. Anybody mm-hmm. who has immigrant parents, mm-hmm. we all exist one foot in one culture and one foot in the other. Even if you were born here, your foot is solidly planted like you were born here. But there's so much of this also in, in the old homeland. Yes. Can I ask where your parents are from? If you don't, that's one immigrant, yeah. one, one other immigrant kid, if I may. <laughs> no, it's fine. So my, my dad is from Ghana. And my mom, actually, my mom was born in England, but her whole family is from Jamaica. Yeah. So my grandpa was, he moved to Jamaica like in the 50s and he moved back when all his kids got older. But I, it's so funny when I was, I think I was six, the first time I went to Jamaica, went to go visit my grandpa. 
and a different feeling like i felt like i belonged there yeah it's like i had a connection to this place and i was like i don't know where i remember being like i never want to leave my mom so we've got to go you have to go back to school but i was like i just want to stay here forever and then it wasn't till i think it was four years ago i got to go to ghana for the first time and it was that same feeling of i look like everybody here like i understand the nuance of the culture like differently and it's just a feeling like it's and i remember when i was when i got my first job like my nursing job where i made like actual money to survive i was like my goal is to go and like to all these places that i've never been but i wanted to go especially to ghana because i hadn't been there yet just to to have that feeling and i felt it when i went there i was like okay i this is where my people walked and this is where like their things are and it's such a weird feeling because i don't know but you and i are people who kind of delve in this kind of world but i guess if other people don't they don't think about that but i've heard that same experience from a lot of people i have a lot of friends i live in new jersey so there's a lot of italian americans here mm-hmm. so a lot of them go to italy and they say i felt different i'm like i'm telling you you yeah, will yeah you feel your people there and you feel a connection that sometimes you may have thought well i'm just going to visit but it's something out of this world it's very interesting it's one of those multi-levels of culture that I think, unless you've had that experience of having a multicultural background, you don't necessarily understand. And it can be something so subtle as just how you show up, right? Like yeah. I notice, I actually have four different accents. My parents are from England. I grew mm-hmm. up in North Wales. I grew up in a town and actually live quite close by now. I grew up in a town which was like third generation German. So it has mm. that like Letterkenny. I don't know if you know the show. Yeah, Letterkenny, yeah. <laughs> Letterkenny is based on a town very similar to mine in southern Ontario. Okay. So like wherever I am, my accent becomes thicker depending on who I'm talking to. So like in the past two years, because I'm actually, your viewers can't see this, but I know you can. I have a box, Mm -hmm. like a whole wall of U-Haul boxes behind me because I'm actually moving back to the UK next year. In in about 11 months, I'm moving back to the UK. And I've been making a lot of connections with people back home because it's Mm -hmm. still home to me even after 28 years. And I notice that when I get off the phone with any of them, my accent is incredibly thick. And it's yeah. so weird how it's that mirroring, it's that cultural mirroring. Um, but yes. I do know they feel different. It's same with what you were saying. You felt different when you were in Ghana. You felt different when you were in Jamaica, right? I'm sure mm. if you go to England to visit relatives, same thing. You'll be one of us still. Yes, and I, I love I love England. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I really love England. Where is your family from? England, like where are they? So where are they? my mom grew up in Gloucestershire, but she always says, "Don't say Gloucestershire. They think I'm from the fancy part." No, I'm from the city. <laughs> I'm not from the Russia, nice. Right? Yeah, yeah. She's. I'm not from the nice countryside. I'm from like the city part. Mm-hmm. But then I have family in Leeds, and I have family. Actually, my one uncle lives in Cardiff, um, oh, in Wales. Nice. Yeah, but I've never been to Cardiff. But I hear really nice things about it. And and I have family still in in Gloucester City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I like England though. It's a different. It's a wee different vibe than America. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. They have their issues over there. They do have their mm-hmm. issues over there. It's different. It's yeah. as opposed to whatever is going on in your country. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I love, and like, I love, 
every and i have to say you speaking of issues like every country has issues like jamaica is way not perfect ghana's way not but like it's just a different feeling because you know because like in my bones i know it but i just like old things right everything in america is not old so it's everything's just here and everyone's like oh you want to go to the historical part it was it's in this was built in 1700 and i'm like that's not old <laughs> you go to like you go to like any little like a small town in england and there's some bar and on top of it says it like started in 1490 and i'm like yes this is what i love i love old churches i could spend a day just going to old churches just <laughs> honestly same here very yes. something about that feeling energetically there's something about that feeling right yeah. part of my story is i was connected with yoruba tradition lakumi Kafro mm-hmm. tradition and people i know people who've gone to the oshun shrine in osogbo in nigeria yeah and they said when you enter that space you can feel the thousands of years of activity you're not going to get that in Brooklyn. You're not going to no. get that California. Unless, of course, you go to Native American sites. But it's yes. a different relationship. You know what I mean? You're like, yeah, yeah, these are my people. Everybody gets how I am, blah, blah. And it's so funny. Also, what you said about accents, my accent changes depending on who I'm speaking to. And it's also, cool. de- yes. And also my level of anger. Like, I, <laughs> the more irritated I am, the more broken my English becomes. The way it's a different way of expressing, right? And, and yes. like, I, I find the same with me. Like, I had a situation the other day where an insecurity came up because I asked a very direct question to a friend of mine in the UK and they pussyfooted around the answer because they were feeling uncomfortable about the answer. And they mm-hmm. said, no, just be direct, just be direct, just be direct. Yeah. That's the North American in me coming up. It is it's fascinating. <laughs> it is fascinating. Different parts of personality. And like language is amazing for that because language, I'm not bilingual. I'm trying to learn Welsh, which is the, oh. you know what it is. I'm trying to learn Welsh. Yeah. But I know who, I'm, who are bilingual. Anybody who's bilingual, many people who are bilingual, they'll say that they're a different person when they speak the various different languages right and it's interesting yes. how that as a symbolic process works right 100 i'm i'm same i'm also not bilingual but i'm trying to also learn my dad's language now and oh my gosh you're trying to learn welsh oh I'm my lord good for you because <laughs> i have Ooh, what's that learn. mean I'm trying to learn it Shared is uh, speak Dusky okay. is learn so I'm, i don't speak oh. but i'm trying to learn but it's funny how when you actually get into it, it's very, actually very similar to French in, in, in how it's organized. And I grew up over here learning French in school. Mm. I didn't, I don't know French, but I studied it. And it's funny how even just using different language, even just different words, even different slang, whatever it is, different parts come out. Yes. Sorry, I cut you off. You were going to go into no. a story. No, you're fine. No, I was just going to say that I somehow ended up on like Welsh TikTok so like, I end up and I'm very like now strong. Yeah, Wales is its own thing. And like oh. every Welsh person, you guys should learn the language. And it's I like listening to it because it just sounds cool. Yes. But, and there's a lot of towns in like Pennsylvania where they have Welsh names. And I'm always just like, why do Welsh people hate vowels? There's no vowels. <laughs> How do you say all these words? But but then when you hear people speak Welsh, it just comes out so naturally. It's like butter. I love it. But I don't know how to pronounce like any, even there's a place called, I know we're all saying it wrong. Don't know how to really say it, but there's a town called Bryn Mawr and there's a college there, but everyone just says Bryn Mawr. And there's no 
vowels. Just like you guys, well, I'm pretty sure we're yeah, all saying that, this wrong. That, that, <laughs> we could get into the colonialist piece there. That's because colonialism mm-hmm. England, English phrased the way that it was even written. So like yeah. when it's spoken, it's like with any language, like Yoruba or Ibo or is it Fon spoken in Ghana? My tribe, I'm a Shanti, so we speak true. Shanti. Yeah. Okay. There's vowels in all of those languages. They're yeah. just not necessarily transliterated fully. Exactly. And mm-hmm. the alphabets, obviously, duh, I can figure this out, but like the alphabets are different. So like you said, mm-hmm. when they anglicize everything, it looks different than it's even supposed to be pronounced. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the same thing in Yoruba. It's the same thing in tree. Like a lot of the, you have to learn the alphabet the way they, they have it. Because if you mm-hmm. don't, you're not going to say the words. But yeah, and that's just... And it's hard because I don't know about Welsh. I don't know too much about the language, but like certain traditions around the world, the language wasn't always super written out. It was just like, this is how we say it. And everyone just agrees. This is how we say it. But then when it came to colonization, like you said, everybody had to write it. And so it's like, I don't know how we're going to write this. <laughs> like This is a real letter or word. And, and then you have different, you think of different, I don't know too much about Shrillic, that's like the Russian Slavic. Yeah. yeah, but like I know in Arabic, there's there's no G in Arabic. Mm-hmm. There's certain letters that they don't even have and like sounds that we don't use. So it gets hairy when you just try oh. to write everything in like English or Latin lettering like or whatnot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, certain things get lost. It's yeah. so like in Welsh, we have 28 letters instead of 26. And okay. it's like the double D and the double L are different letters. Hmm. And how you pronounce that, and it all comes down. And so the reason I have a, a much easier time, I actually had a Welsh speech therapist when I was born. I was I was born with something called dyspraxia, which is a motor control issue. So okay. it affects people who are clumsy, often have dyspraxia. It's also a neurodivergent piece because it's oh. a disorder that affects affects the functioning of ordering of muscles. So it affects different people differently. But I actually couldn't speak. I could fu- fully understand, but I couldn't speak until I was about five years old and I had to go through exten- extensive speech therapy. Oh, okay. so I have a slight lisp. It's ever so slight now. But I had a Welsh speech therapist who also taught me how, when I was doing Welsh, how to, because we learned Welsh in school, like in Canada, we learned French or like down there in mm. Spanish or German. Yeah. So Double L is, so you put your the tongue at the top of the of the for throat and your sa mm. so like any of the double L's in 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 Sanfer Puyfil Gilgilich. It's a big long <laughs> one that you see sometimes, right? Yeah. So the double L's in Royal, but like a lot of languages have those Bantu. A lot yeah. of the Bantu languages in Africa, they have it. Right? Yes, yes. And it means very, I think in some languages it's actually an, exclam- it's an exclamation point. So when you're done saying a certain syllable, you might mm-hmm. click as a way of emphasizing that it's a different tone or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Um, but if you're not used to doing that in your own in, in your own language, then it would feel awkward. It's Japanese. They, they have very difficult time with R's because there are no R's mm-hmm. in Japanese. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting how even something like language can affect so much of who we are i know i love languages i wish i was like one of these like polyglot people who can speak like seven i can't but i just with i love it like it's and like you're saying like things even the way and so many languages are like about tone you know yeah. about 
especially I know Chinese is a lot about tone. I used to work with a lot of Chinese people, and I'm like, oh, you guys like teach me how to say it. My one coworker Hong, she's so sweet. She was alright. I'll teach her to say it. I said everything wrong, but there was like one word, and there's four different tones to it. Depending on how you say it, it means something different. And the same thing actually in in Yoruba. Like my fiance teaches me little things here and there, but there's one word that if the way you say it either means like penis. Farm or sea, and I'm like, <laughs> and every time I say it wrong, so like, oh no, that's the sea one. When you're trying to say farm, no, that's penis, and I'm like, all right, you know what, I give up. But yeah, <laughs> it's a good time, yeah, like, yeah. But oh, I love, yes, language is amazing. How did? Okay, what am I going to ask you next? You're so interesting. You have so many cool things going on. Um, <laughs> You're asking good questions. You can match me, so it's good. <laughs> okay, medieval and classical studies. Were you always just, did you always just be like, were you always just like a history person? You just like history? I'd say so, yeah. So British culture, and what well, you've been over there multiple times, it sounds like what it's like, right? Like you can't walk anywhere without medieval history suddenly being in your face. Yeah, and because it lives culture. People in North America, because we don't have that over here, people think, oh my God, you were surrounded by castles and ancient <laughs> churches, and this must be amazing. And then you get over there and you're wandering about, and people are throwing garbage next to a thousand year old church or pissing on a certain thing. <laughs> yeah. It's like that in any lived culture. You don't yeah. necessarily, it's just a part of the landscape for you. But because I moved over, and I've only ever been back to the UK once, I was working over there. Mm. about 14 years ago for an extended period for about six months so i lived uh, practically lived over there again but it's one of those because i was detached from it and because i was so homesick i like home i wanted to be home because yeah. canada, i still don't feel very connected to canada even after 28 years medieval history and kind of all of that like classical studies all of that piece reminded me of home because all of those pieces are there yeah. like where i was living in wales we were quite close by to chester which is one of the oldest okay. Cities in 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 England, yeah. And the far the little cottage that we lived on, the end of the drive was off his dike, and there was also a Roman road. So mm-hmm. Roman stuff was always around me when I was a kid. Same with medieval stuff. So I was I became very interested in kind of medieval history. But I'm also a history buff too. I'm one of those mm-hmm. I like to. I think it's part of my neurodivergence. I like to mm-hmm. see the connections between events. It's one mm. of those things. So okay. classical, and it, it was interesting. When I went back to school, I intended to just do finish my 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 bachelor's. That's all mm-hmm. I wanted to do, and and it really fell into place. My school is amazing. I didn't. I'm not going back to the same one I started at. I actually transferred mm-hmm. to one that was closer to me when I where I was living, and I, I phoned them up on in November and I said I'm thinking of moving. I'm thinking of transferring. I have all like this part done bachelor's. I was about three quarters of the way through my last one. I didn't really want to finish that one. It was in social work. I already had psychotherapy training. I didn't feel like I needed to go back and do an internship and all of this it would have just been yeah. a waste of my time i was already making mm-hmm. enough money on my it was through my psychotherapy work because in, mm-hmm. in the meantime i went and finished my therapy training but i was like i might go back and just do it for fun because i love i'm a student i love learning all the time yeah i said okay best way to do that is come into liberal arts just do a liberal arts degree and then you can do whatever you want because we would give you 50 percent transfer credits so oh, when i got great. there I, it was great i loved that i was like you know what it's okay and where i was the school was only about like 20 minute 
walk. It wasn't far away. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I have the financial ability to do this. I've been paying out of pocket, which is good. I'm in a very fortunate mm-hmm. position that way. And of course, to your American listeners, I have to say Canadian education is vastly cheaper than down there. <laughs> oh, yeah, because everybody right now is, this guy is a millionaire. <laughs> I know, right? Like $100,000? He had $100,000? Yeah. What? He's no. He's out of pocket. No. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was eating noodles for a few months. But, but yeah, I was able to because Canadian education is cheaper. And because yeah. I already had my apartment, so it wasn't like I needed to find a place to live. It was it worked within my lifestyle. So mm-hmm. I transferred. It gave me 50%. And then suddenly I had half a degree that was just whatever I wanted. We were all electives. And okay. so I was like, okay, I'll pick ones that kind of supplement what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. And then when I actually got into it, after my first semester, I had the option to go full-time because I started with only two courses. And I was like, okay, well, I think I might do some because they have a medieval studies course, one mm. of the best in Canada, actually. I was like, oh, okay, I'll take some of those courses. And then I started to realize... Because when I was in university last time, I didn't really think about opportunities. But I'm like, I'm a little older. I understand how universities work. And and so I I contacted an advisor and I was like, I want to make this into something more than just a liberal arts degree. Like that just didn't seem like it was going to be anything, right? So I was like, I'm interested in taking a minor. And we got talking. And then as I started to think about it, I was like, so I asked them, do you allow double dipping? So double mm. dipping is when you can put one course to two different minors. Oh, okay. And they said, yes, you can. Because a minor uh, a minor is a smaller kind of cluster of courses that give you a designation and specialization, right? So I was starting with religious studies, and I noticed a lot of religious studies courses were cross-listed with classics or with medieval studies or with history. So Makes I was like, sense, yeah. okay, let's sit down here. This is where the neuro- neurodivergency really helped. Down, and I thought, okay, it's only eight courses per per minor i could probably fit two minors in and then mm-hmm. i read somewhere that i can actually do uh, they told me that i can double dip so i was okay. like okay so four of these courses suddenly cross list with each other mm-hmm. and then as i started to put it together i realized that in the span of 16 courses i could actually complete four minors because wow. they all cross listed <laughs> with each other i know I, when awesome. I, was the last time, I was like what so i sat with it and i was like okay i think i can do this because then i would be graduating with something a little bit beefier and, yeah. and i ended up dropping the history one because it just was blase but mm-hmm. i with religious studies the classics and the medieval because again, a lot of them flow into each other. Like Roman history really connects with medieval because that, that yeah. the two periods cross over. And medieval studies had a big list of all sorts of other courses that would be classed as medieval studies. So like English courses, fine arts courses, all of these different things. So I was like, okay, I think this is good. And as I got into it in the, in that semester, I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to do this. So I Ooh. sat down with an advisor, asked a few more questions, and then I came up with a plan for myself. And now I'm going to be graduating with a liberal arts bachelor degree with minor in medieval studies, classical studies, and, and, and religious studies. And the beauty with that is I didn't think of doing a master's originally when I first started this was just to get my BA done and that was it because it was always on my bucket list yeah and then when I started thinking about moving back to the UK I was like I and we'll get to my book I'm sure but I, I just, <laughs> I've also written a book for all of us too yeah 
So I was like, You're okay, a busy I wanna, person. I'm a busy person. But a lot of these threads connect. So in my therapy work and my ancestral work, a lot of that is based on story. Folklore is, and we talked about oral culture before, folklore mm-hmm. is oral culture. Yes. Folklore is the tradition of the people, right? Yes. And so all of those pieces, medieval studies, classical and religious studies, all of them impact folklore. And so I'm now in the process of applying to a master's in folklore studies in a place just outside of London, Hertz, Hertfordshire. Okay. Uh, no, Hertzshire, just on the top end, like, uh, near St. Albans, just on the top of London there. So I'm in the process of applying for that. And then that will then feed into all of my kind of my spiritual work, my writing work, giving me a little bit more gravitas and, and help me to give me research skills. So yes. a lot of threads. I feel like my whole life is just threads being woven together in the tapestry. Yes. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. That's so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Saying that to me now, I'm like, wow, I want to know me. You're like, wow, I'm awesome. Oh, I... <laughs> wake up and I'm like, who am I? Who the fuck am I? <laughs> oh my so god, funny. I love that. I know, look how you went from, like you said, that you started school, then you dropped out, and now you're like, you have four minors, mm. and then now you're going to go, oh my god, this is so cool. Now you're going to yeah. go get your master's, and we are so proud of you. I'm saying all of us, yeah. because I feel like everybody listening to this is, that person is so cool. I tell you what, though, and this is where the ancestral work comes in. So this mm. is where the ancestral healing comes in. I, I mentioned before that I was involved with Lakumi. So Lakumi, for those yeah. listeners, I'm sure many of you listeners know what it is. For those who may not be unaware of the term, so Lakumi is the Afro-Cuban version of the Yoruba tradition. And for two years when I was doing my psychotherapy training, actually lived with my godfather with his orishas and Oshun he's crowned Oshun and Oshun Mm. is particularly interested same with Yemaya particularly Mm -hmm. interested in education they want their children to go and and gain education and I could feel the hand in that and Mm. my experience of Lukumi really put me back into contact with my own ancestors so my British heritage all of my my particular lineage and the message from them again was stop living in the past stop living in that idea of that you're a failure move Mm. into the future and this is me doing honor to not only the, 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 the deities, the Orishas, to God, to my ancestors, but to myself, to my own Ori. So it's one of those, I'm working on myself because I'm becoming a healthier version of myself in more alignment with that. Yes. Kind of if that makes sense. Yes. Oh my God. That's so funny. I work with Oshun a lot also like mm-hmm. in my practice and I have that same thing. Like when I started working with her, she's so all those things seem like things I was like, oh, I can't do that. I've never been able to do that. I'm not smart enough. And she's like, so you didn't try though. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> so maybe yeah. if you tried a little harder, you could totally do it. Why are you giving up on yourself? I'm like, it's so true. Just because you don't get something maybe the more traditional way the first time doesn't mean that you can't if you want to you can go back and do literally whatever you want it's like yeah we're the only ones stopping us so oh that's so cool the ancestors and the spirits and god they have a much broader view of time than we do yeah that was the biggest one of the biggest lessons that i learned in lakumi 
and I'm no longer connected with Aile. I still I still in contact with my former godfather, but because I'm moving to the UK, it didn't make mm-hmm. sense to really put my roots down over here if I'm moving yeah. over there. Right? But but that was really my biggest takeaway. We also practice Espiritismo, so working with my spirit mm-hmm. guides, same thing. They have a much broader view of time. So we need to keep in mind that we can be very hyper-focused on a little tiny little piece. They have a much broader view. There's all sorts of stories of Oshun particularly where she will not hurt her children, but mm-hmm. she will command a lot from them. And yeah. if you don't get it right, she'll give you a smack yeah. in your head. And being, having smack might be having a major mental crisis or having a major injury or whatever. That's her, yeah. her vision. But her view is, in the long term, you'll be fine. This will make you a stronger mm-hmm. person. The ends justify the means, right? <laughs> 100 it's oh my gosh that's so true and i try to remind myself of that all the time like that me like i do the same thing i've for a long time especially when i was in my 20s i'm 35 so i'm almost your age so i used to put myself on a timeline i didn't do this at this time and i haven't had this and i haven't had this experience and now i'm like through a lot of my spiritual work also they've told me the same thing they're we don't care about time i don't know they're like we don't know why humans are so obsessed like, they're like, why are you worrying it. about this exactly why is this a problem and everything will get done when it gets done like it, it's fine and everything is gonna happen when it's supposed to so the same thing like even this podcast i wanted to do podcasts for the past like literally seven or eight years and I just didn't because I was like, that's a dumb idea. Look at me. I'm not that person. I can't do that. But then I just did it. So it's like like, the whole time I kept telling myself, no, you're not. I don't. I'm not smart enough or I'm. I should just do what I'm doing and be happy with that. And it's, but I wasn't, I wanted more. So you're so right. Like every, everybody, this is me and Ben are telling you that you can accomplish anything you want. Anything you want. So then, okay, let me give you a psychotherapy question here. I'm going to interview you for a bit. So what do you think? (laughs) You'll regret this afterwards. (laughs) What, What do you think was holding you back? And what changed? What shifted for you to be able to step into doing this right now? Yeah, let's see. I think because I, for a long time, I always thought I needed like help or I needed somebody to do something with me or I needed, cause I always consider myself like I- I'm good at certain things. I like certain things. My, I always say my muggle job, I'm a nurse. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I'm okay at that. I went to school for that. I didn't go to, you've gone to college and you've learned all these things about history. I love history and religion and all this stuff, but it's just like a pastime. So I was like, I'm not knowledgeable enough. Nobody cares about anything I think. And all of these subjects that I love to talk about, like they're weird and nobody else wants to talk to me about it. <laughs> so why would I go and talk to people about it? I just always thought, and also there's a lot of things in my life I feel like I should have accomplished this or been be- better at this by now, and I haven't. So I'm just like, I don't want to start something else and then disappoint myself, like, right. again. But then right. I was like, I think it was honestly this past year, and a lot of it had to do with my spiritual work. I feel like I did a lot mm. of shamanic journeying on it and a lot of asking questions and being like, what? What, why shouldn't I do all these things? And they were like, we don't know why you shouldn't. You're the only person who keeps telling yourself that you shouldn't. Just do something you want to do and see how it goes. You And if you don't like it, then you stop. And I'm like, oh, that's it? <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. just shifting that question of why shouldn't to why should I? 
Yeah. What if? What if I just liked it and now I like it? So it's like, it's not, I'm having so much fun. It's like, I, I don't know. I get very involved in this thing that I'm not doing well enough and I'm not smart enough and I'm not good. So I get so obsessed with that idea that I stop myself from doing a lot of things. And I'm trying to let go of that now. I'm too... And also the idea that I should have done this before. Why didn't I do this when I was like 20? But I realize now I didn't have the patience. I didn't have the experience to do a lot of these things. I don't know. Yeah. So that's where I'm at. But I'm good now. I'm okay. I'm happy. I, as a guest, I'm enjoying this. But it's very true. It's yeah. those, I see this a lot with my therapy clients. I see mm-hmm. this a lot with my spiritual direction clients. And I think you probably do too with your clients, right? It's this idea that it's all narrative. It's the, it isn't the looking at possibilities. It's the looking at deficits. Yes. What you just said just then, why didn't I do it when I was 20? If you had done it when you were 20... You may have regretted doing it, or you may not have. But you being 35 doesn't mean that you've lost that time. You being 35 means that you're being 35. I think we get caught in in the past so much. That was one of the big takeaways for a lot of my work Mm. with my ancestors. I needed a lot of healing. And the overall... I'll give you an example. So in 2016, I had seven men come back into my life, guys, who I had some sort of romantic or feeling or strong feelings for. Mm -hmm. It was inexplicable how every single one of them came back into my life randomly, Mm. but it wasn't random, right? And every single one of them brought a piece of healing that I needed or that they needed. Yeah. And like one example of this, like even just speaking about it is ridiculous. I was sitting in a motel room in the middle of the of a city that I didn't go to very often, far away from Toronto. It was like three hours away from Toronto. Mm-hmm. I go onto Grinder because we use the apps, right? Absolutely. I go onto a dating no app. Problem. Yeah. And this guy messages me and he doesn't have a profile pic. Mm-hmm. And I don't look at all like how I did when I was 18. Yeah. So we get yeah. talking. <laughs> oh, nobody does, right? Very does, few yeah. But we get chatting and we get chatting and it turned out that he was somebody that I had intimate relations with when Mm. I was 18 and he was 18 as well. And Mm. for years he had always thought about me because at that point in his life he felt like he was nothing, that he was worthless, that he Mm. was disgusting, that he was ugly, all of this. And just us like having that connection for a few months made such a difference to him. And he's always wanted to say that to me. And I came back into his life just as he needed to say that to me. And I needed to hear that. Right? Oh, I love that. I needed to hear that as much as he did too. But that happened seven times. Seven times over 2016. And it was ridiculous. And it ended with like really the one of the biggest impact impactful people in my life coming back into my life after seven years of not talking to him. Wow. And I finally came to understand, with my godfather's help too, that really was my ancestors pushing these people back into my life because their message was, and I talk about that in my book, that I was living in the past too much. I was regretting all of those experiences with those people. I was regretting a life that I wasn't living anymore. And in regretting that lost life, I wasn't living my own life. So that was their message, live in the future, don't live in the past, you don't belong there. And it sounds like for you, that was a switch for you too. Yes. Oh my, first of all, that is a nice story. It's like, yeah, that is beautiful because it does happen sometimes when like you just needed to hear something at that moment. And like you said, you guys both made impacts on each other's lives in that. That's so beautiful. And that's so true. Yes, I also 
tend to live and i think also some of it has to do with that like being bullied i think too i have this i trauma yeah that childhood trauma because i think as much as and i always say i give my parents a lot of credit they really did do their best to try to be like you are who you are you're smart you're this don't and like of course i love my parents they're good people but in my head it it just was in my head somebody's telling you you're ugly and you're fat and you're this and you're that and you're too this or too that your whole like childhood you internalize some of that Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and i think even at my age now a lot of it i've healed but i think there's still little bits of it that's no i'm not good enough to do that i and i always idealized this is gonna sound real weird but i think growing up i always idealized like i can't do certain things because i'm not thin and i'm not white mm. and i'm not blonde so like i should oh, that just doesn't sound weird at all yeah okay thank you oh, you're so sweet I was, yeah i was i think i internalized that so then there's certain things i was just like i should just never try doing this because i don't look like that or and people are gonna say things about me so i should just not do it but yeah i think now getting older and seeing that wait you know what i am okay like i i do matter mm-hmm. to people and i have made a difference at least in the people i know and I have good people in my life, so I can mm-hmm. do, you know, what I like and figure myself out. You stop taking responsibility for a story that wasn't yours. Right? Yes. Yes. Like, even in what you just said, that I am okay, you were always okay. Yeah, right? that's true. But you weren't, the story that you had accepted wasn't the story that placed you in it. It wasn't mm-hmm. your story. It was Pamela Anderson's story by the sounds of it. Yeah, thank you for this mini therapy session. I have to pay. Oh, cool. yeah, yeah, for sure. I'll charge you later on. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, oh. but it's true. It ties directly in, because I've seen your website, it ties directly into your message as well. It's that mm-hmm. idea of what stories are we all living in? And that's what yeah. I love about folklore, because mm-hmm. folklore is all inclusive. Folklore yes. is sometimes about a people, but it's also about landscape. Anybody in a landscape can be experiencing that story, in which yeah. case then it doesn't matter where what your background is. You're in the story itself. Yes. That's yeah. what I love about folklore. Me too. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, okay. So this is amazing. You're the best. Okay, so... <laughs> We're going to move to our dish of the week because we could go on about this forever and we will. So that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I love this. Um, So this week, our dish of the week, I actually changed it up a little. It's a little different. Instead of having a food, since you are coming out with a book about ancestor veneration, Mm -hmm. I was like, why don't we talk about how we feed our ancestors? Yeah, the best way to feed them. So I have just a few little things here. So... One way that we feed our ancestors is by making altars for them. Ancestral altars are real easy to make. You can put on your altar whatever you want, whether it's your own from your own spiritual tradition, you can put that up there. And then you can include what I like to include is items. If I have items from them or items from that culture, put that on my altar and Again, you can put a few into crystals or anything. You can put that on there too. But it's all about how you want to honor them. And it's just remembering them, remembering who they were and remembering your connection to them. And it's, if, have you ever seen Coco? 
I love okay. Coco. I love And Coco. I talk about it in my book a lot, so I love oh, Coco. Really? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I was, oh, God, I love Coco. But yes, like your classic ofrenda from the me- Mexican culture, remembering those people is the whole point of altars, <laughs> and you can do your altar however you like. Another way, and we talk about, a lot about this in like death work and working like with death doulas and stuff. We talk about being able to grieve your ancestors. A lot of times, sometimes we'll hear the stories of our ancestors and we'll find out there were people who were never grieved. And there's tons of reasons that happens, whether it was children who died, whether it was somebody who was estranged from the family for whatever reason. But taking that time to grieve them and almost give them a like a little memorial for yourself it could just be reading them a poem or making a little ritual for that person that helps honor your ancestors in a really big way and it does a lot for your connection Mm -hmm. speaking of them and telling their stories just like you're talking about with everything with folklore it gives you first of all a sense of your own culture and where you come from and telling those stories is just fun who like (laughs) that's also to hear the story of some crazy thing that happened just then third bringing them offerings things they like if you know that a certain ancestor liked a certain thing or a lot of people use alcohol a lot of people a lot of different cultures use alcohol walking and just talking to them the thing that people forget is it's real and i feel like this is the fault of like major religions and i don't i'm not one of those people who likes to blame major religion for everything but i will say this our connection to the spirit world is a one-on-one thing you don't have to go through everybody else if you want to talk just talk (laughs) <laughs> they hear you yeah agree definitely absolutely mm-hmm. there, there are traditional and this is where the idea of culture comes in there are traditional ways of talking to the dead um, oh yeah and that piece is powerful because in using a traditional way of talking to the dead you're talking to them in a way that they would have used when they were alive too right yeah and so you've got that cultural connection and this is i, I think where I blanched when you said using memorials for the dead and mourning the dead. One of the distinctions I make in the book between kind of mourning and grief work and ancestor work is, and there's a fine line, there's a lot of overlap between them, but one of the Mm -hmm. major differences is that my ancestors are still living now with me, Mm -hmm. present with me. So my work with them isn't as a distant kind of group of individuals who are gone from the world and who I never will access to so they're a living presence in my life and so if they're a living presence in my life even though they're in the land of the dead or space of the dead mm-hmm. then what am i mourning i'm mourning my point. like i'm mourning the type of relationship that i don't have with them that i would have with somebody yes. from the living but then that's also centering myself in the relationship it's if you came in wearing a bright blue dress and i was expecting you to wear a bright red dress i'd be mourning the fact that you're not wearing a blue dress <laughs> My wet, what is this? All of this. That centers me in the relationship. And so for me, then, that's the big difference between mourning and grief work and ancestor work. And that's where grief traditions, because grief and mourning traditions are very important. Every religion and every tradition have them, but only for a certain amount of time. And what That's true, yeah. I've noticed is that those traditions are usually as a part of ushering that individual into the realm of the dead, right? Yes. So if you look at Buddhism, whether it's like the 49 days, or you look at Islam, where it's like getting them into the ground as soon as possible, same with Judaism. Yeah. All of those traditions are really about getting that 
dead spirit to go to where it's supposed to be now. So it's not going to hurt us or impact our, the land of the living. And so then the more, there's a room for mourning. But then with ancestor work, I like to see it as a transitioning point to then, okay, the relationship has changed. Let's switch over yes. to that relationship. That's a yeah. really good point. Yeah, there's a... So that is such a good point. And yes, you're right. There is very, you know, I didn't even think of it this way, which I should have, but thank you for bringing that up. There's very specific things. Even in, like, in Ashanti culture, we have a very specific way of our funerals go a very specific order. And on the eighth day is when we do the burial part and we throw dirt on the grave. And that means it's done. Like, we're done now. Like, we all have to move forward. But yes, and I think in... Even my, I used to do some mediumship classes and I remember the teacher we worked with and she said, there is a time limit. Like now I'm getting a little more woo, but she's like, there's basically a space of time where this spirit is going to be able to enter the spiritual realm. Mm. And if they, and I don't know how much of this I believe, but I'm just saying what this person told me. But if they don't enter in that time, it's like they are wandering around not knowing where to go. And I know like in like my shamanic work, we do a lot of psychopump work where we move spirits from this world to the next. So I don't know. I never interviewed those spirits and asked them how long did it take you? But yes, that's and that's why we have those specific traditions in a lot of these different places around the world is because we're like trying to get them up there so that they can become an ancestor because our ancestors are very helpful. They're, meant, they're supposed to be helpful, right? Yeah. yeah they're very they're like, helpful, yeah. There are, and that is also, and I'll get what you think about this, but that's what I always say, like, the difference between ancestral work, there's a difference between ancestral worship and ancestral veneration. And my thing, I think the difference is when you worship something like a deity, you're saying that this deity is the one that's going to do this and that. To me, ancestral veneration is saying that these spirits are way closer to the source, creator, God, whichever one you call them, than me. And they know a lot of the more secrets of the universe than I know because I'm here in the world and living a very worldly life and they're up there or wherever they are. Asking them for things or asking them for advice and that kind of thing and saying, oh my gosh, you guys are not physically here on this plane, but you're there. Do you think you could help me out if that's what you're asking them for? I think makes sense. And that's what I think is veneration. You're saying, wow, this ancestor, this person I'm related to has gained so much knowledge and I am here to honor that knowledge. And I don't know how you feel about that, but you can tell me. I think this is coming back to what we were saying about the limitations of language, right? Because, and this is part of the decolonization work that I've been doing for myself. Mm -hmm. When looking at, because with my book, I went around the world and looked at examples from around the world. Mm -hmm. It was really important for me because I didn't want to just center one tradition. This, my book, Ancestral Whispers, is all about getting people to think about their relationships from an organic point of view, from a culturally sensitive, grounded view. And something that is organic that emerges out of worldview. And so I think this is where the difficulty with language and then translating relationships that are not couched in an English lens into English. Because the difference between worship and veneration depends on how you conceptualize the ancestors. Mm. In many cultures, there is no distinction between God and ancestor because we all are on a continuum. So I have friends in Haitian voodoo. And when Mm. you really look at the loire, 
the Loire, our ancestors, like a lot yes. of the Loire that are come down in, in possession, are actually Haitians who were fighting in the Haitian Revolution, right? They yes. are uh, Orisha, they are voodoo spirits, they are indigenous spirits, and they also are ancestors too. Everybody, uh, or at least my understanding is every initiated Gan or Mambo become a Loire when they die. And mm. so it's that idea of, okay, how do you then translate that relationship, that conceptualization of spirit and that categorization of spirit into English, which is so couched in the Judeo-Christian point of view? Yes. Right? So that's, I for your listeners then, I would strongly suggest, and I talk about that in the book too, mm. is really thinking about worldview because... All worldviews are valid for anybody who follows those worldviews, but yes. worldview and practice has to be linked. And so w with your worldview that you were talking about, you said there's a difference between veneration and worship. Veneration acknowledges that these ancestors are closer to a divine source and so can work more like saints, right? Yeah, yeah. Objects of worship themselves. Hmm. Then when it comes to practice, then how does veneration then impact how you relate, how you give offerings, how you communicate, how you work with versus worship? Whereas there are traditions where the ancestors are deities. Like in Australia, for example, a lot mm -hmm. of the gods of Australia, and I hate to use that word for the Dreamtime spirits, a lot mm -hmm. of the gods of Australia are seen as ancestral because they were the primordial sources of all of the creatures that now exist now. And so in a very literal sense, they are ancestors. They are great-grandfather, great-great-grandmother, and so on. And so you would honor them the same way, at least my understanding in, that, in those cultures is, you honor them the same way that you would honor your elders. Right? Yes. That it's so I'm also like doing a lot of the more I learn and the more I develop different things, all this decolonization is coming out and it gets very complicated because sometimes I feel that to explain things, I don't want to say it in a way that's going to freak people out. It's like true. you said, yeah, like <laughs> worship and veneration, like you're just everything you said, it's completely true. Depending on the cultural context, it can be the same thing. But then certain people, if I'm working with somebody who is, they've been born this specific tradition, like I was raised Catholic. So a lot of the time when I explain things, I try to explain it in a lens of not idolatry-ish. I don't want to freak people out. But what you're, it's, it gets so complicated, but that's why this work is so important because it's important for us to be able to go I feel like one really good thing about mm. our age right now is that people are really interested in going back and yes. seeing how things are working. So those distinctions that you just made are so important. So thank you for saying that. Absolutely. And yeah. if I can add a point on that, then, yes. what, thinking about that, then, it actually is an opportunity. Like that, that complicity and being complicated is actually an opportunity to develop very multifaceted relationships with ancestors. And a friend of mine up in here in Canada, she has Irish and Anishinaabe heritage. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about this at a camp once about how she has to be very intentional when she's offering alcohol to her ancestors. In those cultural contexts, alcohol means something completely different. In the yes. Irish context, it's a form of community building. People come together and drink together, and it's a jolly, merry-making opportunity. It's a bonding. For the Anishinaabe, it was poison. Yes. And so she's very complicit in, not complicit, she's very, very intentional with when she's offering alcohol. These are for my Irish ancestors. 
that they may enjoy a drink on me. This is for the ancestors and having her Anishinaabe ancestors giving her the side eye. It's for my own way of working with my ancestors. So like when I was practicing Lakumi, we worked with Egun Shrine. We worked with a very particular Afro-Cuban offering service, which really related to the Middle Passage. All of the elements on it were very particular and had developed within their culture to honor the ancestors who had died coming over on the boats. And like the elements, the symbols all related to the struggle. There was sugar or molasses in water as a as a symbol of that. There was coffee that was around that, all of that. My English ancestors, my British ancestors, aren't connected to that at all. They went yeah. along with it because of virtue of me understanding it. But yes. then creating and recreating my ancestral, ancestral work to be more connected to my British ancestors, I now offer them tea. It's such a culturally connected thing over there. Yeah. Like, my grandparents loved it. But where it gets into a mindfuck territory is that mm-hmm. the more you go back, the more your image of what your ancestors are starts to shift and change and then suddenly it's okay a thousand years ago i had ancestors all over europe two thousand years ago i may have had african or middle eastern ancestors and so on eventually it's the whole story of the whole world and if you're that's the relationship between who are you relating to what is the dynamic and eventually just building a, a practice that will honor all ancestors and if some of them have issues with it then they can deal and with the other millions of ancestors that we're honoring everybody will figure it out yeah <laughs> okay this is a part of the show where i'm gonna plug myself and then we'll get back into it so if you guys enjoy the show you can follow me on socials i'm at dying with the divine on instagram and facebook and if you really like the show you can give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you listen to it that helps other people find it and if you have any questions or comments please feel free to email me at divine at gmail.com okay next section okay <laughs> and a so, note on that she's very quick in getting back to people too so <laughs> i try i'm like oh somebody wants to talk to me awesome <laughs> so the next thing i was going to talk about is this is our little tea time where we talk about something educational. It's all been mm-hmm. educational, but whatever. Next. <laughs> so I was just going to talk about how there's different types of ancestors, right? I was, before I really got into a lot of ancestor work before, when I think of ancestors, you just think of like your blood relatives, right? Yeah. yeah these are your ancestors, the people you're related to. But then I always thought, so how do people feel who may be adopted or mm. they don't know where their blood ancestors are from that kind of thing or they don't know who they are that's fine we got you don't worry me and ben are gonna handle it so <laughs> you have different types of ancestors so you can have your ancestors of blood and then you can have ancestors of place so you can if you know that your family is from a certain area or this particular place. I know I grew up with a friend from school and he was adopted, but he knew his family was from this specific tribe in Colombia. You can connect with those people by doing research on it. And if you ever have the chance or ability to go visit that place, that's always wonderful. But the internet is great. Like you can do research, you can find that. And these are the people that your fa- the location where your family is descended from. You could also call it ancestors of the land, that particular area. And it may be comprised of different ethnic groups. But if you know the general area, you can research them. And learning those customs can bring you closer, even if you don't know specifics. It can still bring you closer to those ancestors. And like we said before, you could make an altar. You can do whatever works for you to connect with them. Then we also have 
And I read this, I actually got this from a different ancestral book by Nancy Hendrickson. She talks about ancestors of time. So if you, now some people, I guess, don't believe in past lives, but I do. So if you have past lives, you can connect with your ancestors from the past lives that you've had. If you know the areas where that is, you can connect with those people. And the other thing is ancestors of what they call like ancestors of affinity. So these are ancestors of, can be different. Your ancestors of your vocation, say you are a musician, you're a guitarist and you like, Jimi Hendrix could be your ancestor technically because you're a guitarist and you love guitar and he was a guitarist. You have teachers or cultural heroes. A lot of people talk about Marsha P. Johnson being an ancestor of the queer community and different kinds of teachers. And we have ancestors of different spiritual traditions, like for instance, Buddhist monks who have ancestors who were different Dalai Lamas and things like that. And then you have friends. Your friends can be your ancestors because they are your chosen family. Yes. So... You don't just have one type of ancestor if people are like, I don't know where my family's from and this and that. that's totally fine. You don't, that's not the only way that you can connect with the past and connect with who you are. And Absolutely. yeah, all these connections, just like you've heard me and Ben talk about for the past hour, all these connections bring you closer to your own purposes and to you making your life more full and finding more answers in your own life so you can find these answers tons of different ways there's not just one way everybody just wanted to let you know that absolutely absolutely yeah Yeah, absolutely i would mirror all of those echo all of those for me the biggest learning point when it came to ancestor work because ancestors aren't the only spirits i work with i work with spirits in the land i work with deities i work with all Mm -hmm. sorts of different beings and what it came down to for me was that understanding of relationship right Mm -hmm. when we think of the definition of an ancestor it is those who preceded us and those who contributed to our world right and when i think about ancestors and i talk about that in in my book there's a whole chapter on different forms of ancestors and expanding that concept of ancestor because people get locked into this idea of blood relatives yes that works for some cultures but when you think of other cultures like you're from or part of your background is jamaican culture how many aunties do you actually have oh my god yeah (laughs) yes exactly and if anybody doesn't know what he's saying a lot of and i don't know other cultures i can't say but in a lot of west african cultures and caribbean cultures pretty much any older adult is your auntie or your uncle so that's just and growing up people be like how many cousins do you have i'm like i don't know like a lot like (laughs) i don't know i have aunties and uncles who i to this day don't know if i'm actually related to them Mm. i know that's my auntie and that's my uncle yeah and all this stuff and this is a very typical collectivist approach to culture right Mm -hmm. like individualism is really a very western recent thing vast majority of all cultures have been collectivist and that idea of relationship then it doesn't matter then if you know your uncle Yah or your auntie Ye Ye or whoever, right, yeah. is is blood related to you. They contain they contributed to who you are in the mm-hmm. same way that cultural figures, folkloric heroes, the sky, the land, the sea, all of those contributed to who we are. And this yeah. is why when we look at deities. This is going back to that continuum of spirit. What is the difference between? say Yemaya, Virisha Yemaya mm-hmm. is the ocean or a good part of the ocean. What is the difference between her, who is the mother of all the Arishas, 
and our mothers in life. Mm. Our ancient ancestors, our primordial ancient ancestors evolved within the ocean. So we can literally say that, at least from that point of view, Yemaya is an ancestor in that way. Yeah. And so then the relationship piece is there. So looking at relationship as as those who contributed to who you are can explain then the power of affinity ancestors. In nursing, for example, Florence Nightingale created yeah. the modern Western concept of nursing. I'm sure that you did a full course on, on Florence and her history, Florence. right? Yeah. The vivid figure that whenever you do whatever you're doing in your work, she is present because her hand actually put all that together she is an ancestor this is why i love this is why i love looking at and exploring and and hearing the stories of people who come from like espiritismo based cultures there's a Mm -hmm. cult down or a religion down in venezuela called the cult of maria leonsa and that is a perfect example of what we're talking about with affinity ancestors here there are courts of spirits and they're all led by very particular, powerful cultural heroes. Mm. The cult of physicians, or the court of physicians, is a space where all physicians eventually will end up, and they all lend this combined spiritual power to the healing process. And it's led by one of the most famous doctors in Venezuela. And so that in, in itself, it shows the idea of affinity ancestors. Anybody who's a physician can call upon, and I feel like his name is Don Pedro, I should know this, but it's all coming out of my head right now. But no, they, I feel like I've heard they, of that. Like, and yeah. they're, they're standing there. They can call upon the ancestral guiding hand of this doctor. Same with you. You could call on Florence Nightingale, give you the strength to go through that day, right? Mm-hmm. And that relationship there. But of course, you wouldn't go to Florence Nightingale when you're asking a more domestic situation, right? Because yeah. it's, you don't have a relationship with her. Same with yeah. other forms of ancestor. I actually talk about how fictional characters can be ancestors. Yes. Because if we're inspired by them and they give us, if they contribute to who we become, then they are ancestral to who we've become in a way. Yes. And so then honoring, how do you honor these, the, these types of affinity ancestors, these conceptual ancestors, I like to call them. So mm-hmm. when it comes to adoptive people, this is any... Any group, particularly African-Americans in North America, this is a mm-hmm. big issue yeah. because so many of the records don't go back, don't record. They don't know the names of their ancestors, mm-hmm. but they know that they were buried in particular graveyards. And so those graveyard yeah. spaces become really important. But when you look at what, ancest- what ancestral story is, if you go back so many generations, I think it's like something like eight generations, eventually mm-hmm. you have ancestors who are connected to all parts of the community and so your individual family story becomes the story of the whole community the whole tribe the whole land the whole kingdom Mm -hmm. so then in that way even though you may not know who your individual ancestors were you know that your ancestors were part of all of this history and so then the whole of that history is your story and that's a way of working with ancestors in that way yes no it makes so much sense yes oh i love that um yes this is why oral culture is so powerful and folklore again coming back to folklore because the individuals are subsumed into a collective we often see this in especially specifically in west african cultures Mm -hmm. and other areas around the world like asia and australia and south america the individual ancestors eventually, once they pass out of living memory, they're subsumed into the collective ancestors. But the ancestors 
are connected with frameworks of story and oral narrative. So an example might be Pueblo people in southwestern United States and their Kachina spirits. And I love the Kachinas. These mm. are the masked figures that come dancing. Every single one of them is like 200 or 400 of them, depending on how you look at them. And every single one of them has a story. Every single one of them has a niche within the community. My understanding is that every single one of them eventually absorbs the individuals who would have been following them. So when you're working yeah. with a particular Kachina, you're also working with all the ancestors connected to that Kachina. So it's mm. it becomes a that relationship between individual identity and collective identity. But for the vast majority of the world's cultures, collective identity is more important than individual identity. Yes! I, you know. And yeah. you know what? That also reminds me of, too. Like I said, my, fam- like my mom's family's from Jamaica. And the first time I read about the Maroons, I was like, oh. and again, I don't know if my family, not that I know of, is from that area in Jamaica, which is called cockpit country, where a lot of them were. But... I instantly felt this like connection with them. Number one, because they were in Jamaica and also because a lot of them were Ashanti people and my, my dad's Ashanti. So I felt this, oh my God. And I read everything I could find about it. So that is that, again, that collective kind of thing, because I don't know specific, but I'm sure if I look back long enough, yeah, like they were on the island. My family was on the island. Somebody probably knew one of them. So... I think that this, is the, this is where the real mind fuck comes in. Yes. If there was a way, there may not be, unfortunately, but if there was mm-hmm. a way to track back, you may find that a single person shows up multiple times on your family tree. So your Jamaican Ashanti maroon ancestors and your Ashanti ancestors in West Africa could have mm-hmm. had a common source. Yes. And I always think about yeah. that. And I'm like, man, mm-hmm. that'd be so cool. One day, maybe I'll put my foot down and do more of my genealogy work, but I've done some and that's always fun. I like it. But um. <laughs> rabbit holes. You yes. just get lost. You can get yeah. lost forever in records and stuff, but I love it. <laughs> so we're going to go to our story time because you mentioned something that made me think of what our story time is about. And I was like thinking before, I was like, oh, what could we talk about? There's seven different things I wanted to talk about, but I ended up with this because you're going to get your master's in folklore. So I was like, we're going to talk about something that has heavily folklore. So we're talking about also ancestors that could be just characters. And today our character is Erzad. We're going to talk about now. If anybody's never heard of Scheherazade, I'm sure you've heard of the book A Thousand and One Nights, or some people call it A Thousand and One Arabian Nights. This is a collection of stories, and this was written, they think, some people say it's, the stories may have started being written in like the 9th century, and probably to like the 11th century, which they call like Islamic's golden age. So it was still in like the Middle Ages, technically, but it was just in Asia. Now... A lot of these stories come from the area of Iraq, Iran, and oh, I should say Iraq and Iran. I don't want to sound so American. Iraq. I can't stand that. <laughs> Americans love to say that, and I have to stop saying that. I mean, um, even you're from New Jersey, too. Shouldn't you have a New Jersey accent? Though? I know, like, but I'm like, <laughs> It drives me crazy when I hear people say Iraq and Iraq. It's just annoying. Come on now. <laughs> I'm like, I got to do better. For the collective, a lot of these stories span from that area, from like Persia, mm-hmm. all the way to like Western China. So that big area, sometimes people call it this Asian steppe area. Yes. A lot of that's where a lot of the stories are from. And if you didn't, I remember 
when I was younger, I read some of the stories. I was like, Western China. But when we're talking about Western China, we're not talking about like the Han Chinese people. We're talking about more of like, you've heard of like the Uyghur people. Yeah. Or the Kazakh people who are everywhere. Kazakh people are everywhere in Central Asia. They're, it's so cool. I love reading about <laughs> I'm like low-key obsessed with Kazakh culture because they have the eagles and like horseback. They're just really cool. Yeah, they're really cool people. Okay, so we're going to start our story on a low note, everybody. Trigger warning, there's a lot of murder here, but not that much. We're not going to go super into it, but there's some murder. So there was this king and his name was King Shariar. And he had a wife and his wife cheated on him. So he got super upset about this. Actually, his wife, okay, so his wife... His brother's wife cheated on his brother first, and then his wife cheated on him. So now he, because he was a weak cishet man, he lost all faith in women. He was like, I hate women now. So he killed his wife. He beheaded her. Now he had this stupid, horrible idea that he was like, I hate women now. So what I'm going to do is every single night, I'm going to marry a new woman. And every morning I'm going to have her beheaded because I hate women. Great. Terrible. So his vizier is like basically the king's personal assistant, his right hand man, had to find a new virgin because young people are obsessed with virgins, a virgin every single night so that he could marry her and they could do the do and then he could kill her in the morning. So this went on for like about a year or two. Now the vizier hated this. He didn't enjoy doing this. He wasn't this bad of a guy, but this was his job. So either if he didn't do it, he was going to die, right? So at a point, all the local women figured out that this is bad. All the families figured out this is happening. And a lot of them moved away or they were hiding their daughters from the king. So one night the vizier realizes he can't find any more virgins and he doesn't know what to do. So he's panicked because he knows in the morning he's going to die. So he's probably in his local outhouse thrown up and his daughter her name is Shahrazad she hears him vomiting and she's dad what's going on and the dad is let me tell you the tea what's actually happening in this kingdom so she tells him this what's going on and Shahrazad's like she had heard this was happening but she didn't really believe it she just thought it was like a weird rumor and she's oh my god this is so bad and the dad's yeah so I'm gonna die tonight love you bye and she's I'm not letting this happen you're not going to die. This is what we're going to do. Tell the king I'm going to marry him. And of course, her dad was like, no, you're not. I'm not going to let you do that. I'm not going to let this happen to you. And she's dad. I got a plan. The thing about Shahrazad is she was super, super smart. She read a lot of books. She to the point that even her dad was like, Shahrazad, you've got to do other things and read books because she loves reading. <laughs> she was a reader. She read and read. So her dad was like, I really don't like this. And she's just let me do it because I have to, I want to end this. I'm not going to have this keep happening here. This is crazy. So her dad was like, okay, fine. So meanwhile, by while she was talking to her dad, her sister had overheard the whole conversation. Her sister's name is Dunyazad. And Dunyazad starts crying and she's, Shahrazad, I don't want you to die. I love you. You know, we're sisters. Shahrazad's, I'm not going to die. I'm going to figure this out. You just have to help me with the plan. Fine. So Danyazad's absolutely going to help you with whatever you need. So the next day, the vizier, that's Shahrazad's dad, goes to his boss and he says, King Shariar, you, I got another virgin for you. It's my daughter. And King Shariar, you know what I do to these ladies, right? And he's, yeah, I know, but this is what's got to happen. 
So the king's like, okay, fine. So they get Shahrazad ready. She gets married. They go to the bedchamber. They do the do. Shahrazad, oh, this is stupid, but whatever. And then afterwards, she's, can I use the bathroom? And he's, okay, the king's fine. She goes to use the bathroom. She comes out and she's like hysterically crying. She throws herself at the king's feet and she's, please, I know I'm going to die tomorrow, but can you just let me see my sister? And he's, uh, okay, if you calm down, sure. Just stop crying. You're doing a lot. So Shahrazad whistles for her sister. Her sister comes in. Her sister's crying. Shahrazad's crying. They hug. And her sister, Danyazad, is like, Shahrazad, please just do me a favor. Can you just tell me a story? I won't be able to sleep tonight. I'm just like such a mess. And Shahrazad's like, yeah. She, she looks at the king. She's like, do you mind if I tell her a story if she stays in here for a minute? And the king's like, sure. He's just make it a good story. Don't be boring. And she's okay. And Shahrazad, that's no problem. You're going to love this story. There's magic. There's murder. There's intrigue. So she starts talking. Now, in a thousand and one Arabian nights, there are a whole bunch of stories, but I'm just going to, I'm not going to tell you all of them because it will take forever. So I'm just going to tell you some of the most popular ones. So the first one that you probably, everybody probably has heard of is Aladdin. It's very, it's different. It's not as tame as a lot of Disney movies are not. The real story is not that tame, especially, sorry, side note. If anybody ever reads like the real Beauty and the Beast, it's weird. Like it's a very weird story. There's like weird pedophilia in it and it's just real weird. But anyway, that's another story for another time. But back to what we're talking about. So there's Aladdin and actually Aladdin in Arabian Nights actually happens in Western China, which is pretty interesting. There's a story. Oh, Alibaba and the 40 Thieves in a thousand and one Arabian Nights. We have a lot of other stories and a lot of the stories involve jinn like genies that is the anglicized name of jinn there's a lot of magic there's a lot of intrigue a lot of murder some assault there's a lot of really not kosher subjects but the whole point and we talked about this earlier about like cultural context and stuff Shahrazad, Shahrazad was trying to keep herself from dying. That's the whole point of the story, right? So in order to satisfy the like lust for murder that this king had, she had to tell these like really intense stories. So she tells all these stories and then at the end, so she spends a thousand and one, that's why it's called a thousand and one Arabian nights telling the stories. And if you read them, each story pretty much leads into the next story. So Shahrazad is like, the originator of the cliffhanger she started it because because every story even when i've read the book like you want you're like okay then what happens but she's oh i gotta take a nap and you're like damn it sharazad like, i need to know how the story ends so she did this right for a thousand and one nights at the end of all of it the last night she's okay my story's done and the king's okay that was a good story and then she like calls in at this point, Shahrazad has had two, three kids. Like it's been a thousand and one nights. So she calls in her kids and she's like hugging them in front of the king. And she's like, King, I have one request. And he's what? And she's like, don't murder me. And meanwhile, right, this whole time he hasn't murdered anybody because he's been married to Shahrazad. So she's like, don't murder me. And he's like, yeah, I wasn't gonna. And she's like, oh my God, I wish you had told me that a while ago. I've been telling these stories for years. So this is how Shahrazad ended up saving everybody else in the kingdom. And the king ended up liking her story so much that he had his court 
recorders, I guess, come and write them all down and create this book. Now, these stories weren't translated into English until the 1700s. But and a lot of the stories wouldn't like age. If you read them, you'll be like, this is really messed up. It is. But again, we have to look at the time that Scheherazade was living and what she was trying to do. She's trying to save her kingdom. And also, a lot of the stories are about oppressors and the oppressed. And the stories are coming from a woman's perspective. So a lot of the time, this at this time, these women didn't have a lot of rights. And the only way, a lot of the stories you'll see, a lot of the ways that people get out of it is not by brute force. It's by cunning. It's by wisdom. It's by using that kind of thing. So when you take that and you think, oh, okay. And one in the podcast I actually listened to about it, they talk about how they think like the character Scheherazade put a little bit of herself in each story. Because mm-hmm. what she was trying to do was not die. And all the stories involved the oppressors and the oppressed, and she was being oppressed by this king. So it's just really interesting to listen and go through the stories and hear. You feel like you are there when you listen to these stories, and you really understand the cultural context. But Scheherazade saved herself. Now, I don't think... I'm, I couldn't really figure out if she was a real person. I don't think she was. And I don't, she may have been, and but these stories also may have been written by like a whole bunch of different people. Either way, yeah, Scheherazade is a great folklore ancestor because she literally used her smarts and her wits and her stories to save all these people. So we love Scheherazade. And her she is amazing. I do love Scheherazade. Yes. There's an interesting, there's an interesting kind of organic process that's going on with that particular story. So you mentioned Mm. it wasn't translated into English until the 1700s. That's true. And what they were translating was the Arabic Middle Eastern context of these stories. Now, what's interesting, in particular with the 1001 Arabian Nights, is that what that, what the structure of that story is, it's called a frame tale. Mm, so okay. frame tales are, and there's multiple different, very multiple big examples of these around the world. What frame tales are, they're a story that have stories contained within them. So the Canterbury Tales, yes. the Thousand One Arabian Nights, the Panchatantra, which is a really big one from India, the Jataka mm. Tales from Buddhism, all of these different, actually the Patakins from Yoruba tradition, same mm. thing. All of it is a body of knowledge and wisdom that is framed within a frame tale. And so if we think about the context of how a lot of these stories would have been told, they wouldn't have been read. They would have been performed by minstrels, troubadours, bards roaming around. In the Middle East, that was a big thing because it was a very highly literate culture. Like the Golden Age of Islam is a beautiful example of very high sophisticated culture. But it was also a very strongly oral culture because that's the origin of the Quran. The Quran was originally spoken. And even mm-hmm. now you have, if you go to anywhere in the Middle East and even in North America here in, and in Europe, you will find you will find people who have memorized the entire Quran yes. so that they can recite it because it's meant to be heard. A lot of sacred texts are like that. They're meant to be heard, not read. So mm-hmm. with frame tales, what's interesting is that a lot of the stories in the Thousand and One Arabian Nights are actually show up in other frame tales, but they are on the outside very different the core elements are all the same. 
Mm. And so as you were telling the story, I was picking up something I, I put together for a class I was teaching on the evolution of frame tales. Well, folklore is interesting. Fairy tales are interesting because the study of folk tales is very much like biological, not biological engineering, it's biological evolution. Mm -hmm. They tend to look at the at story through the lens that of evolution. When you piece all the pieces together, the Thousand One Arabian Nights is actually founded 2,000 years earlier in India. And the same stories, a lot of the same stories show up in the Panchatantra, which is the five tantras, but it's wow. fabled. And so what happens is you think merchant culture around the world, right? Mm -hmm. Europe and India were not connected directly, but they were connected yeah. through the Silk Road. Same with Islam yes. and like the, the Middle East. And all of those caravans of merchants and that, those travelers would have been telling each other stories. And so what happened was stories were picked up and assimilated both through a literary form in the noble, like among the nobility, and also as as wandering, like whenever a wandering bard told a story to a new place, a bard in that area would have picked up a story and tweaked mm -hmm. it fit the local culture and so on. So a lot of like fairy tales in like Grimm's fairy tales in Germany when you look at the core elements of them, and this is how folklorists tend to study them, mm -hmm. is they look at the core elements and they look at the core tropes and then they can see, okay, this story over here involving an elephant and a lion is very similar to this one over here between a mermaid and a dragon, yes. except that they're not the same, but what they're doing is the same. What they're mm -hmm. saying is the same. The flow of the story is the same. So it's very interesting, and frame tales are very important that way because what they do is they become containers for a huge number of different stories that the then gathered. And so you actually have various different versions of like A Thousand One Arabian Nights that contain slightly different stories here and there depending upon the region. And that's the power of folklore is that it lands, it assimilates information from the outside. Mm -hmm. lands in the culture. So some of the stories that are in the Thousand One Arabian Nights are very relevant to Muslim and Islamic culture. But when you translate that to North American culture or like European culture in the mm -hmm. 1700s, like you were saying, it, it's weird because the symbols have been tried to be translated directly as opposed to assimilated by European culture. So if you yeah. look at the Thousand One Arabian Nights, some of those stories actually appear in different forms, in different cultural forms, in Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales. And so it's very interesting how that process has gone, but you wouldn't necessarily know it because your experience of the Canterbury Tales, your understanding of the cultural elements in there, and they're normal to you. Yeah. But you're looking at the Arabian Nights, and a lot of the pieces are very different. Like, why is he killing his wife? What is that? It doesn't make any yeah. sense. But in that cultural context, there's more deeper meaning to that. Very interesting how that works. It is. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, my gosh. This is so interesting. And it makes me think of, and I'm going to say this all wrong, but it makes me think of, like, when I was in school, and maybe when you were in school, too, we all had to read, like, the epic of Gilgamesh. And then we had to learn about, like, the hero's journey and how this is one of the first books that kind of framed the hero's journey for every other book ever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's similar. Gilgamesh is a totally different story. But yes. if you look at a hero's journey in many other, even in you look at tarot cards and things like that. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. the same thing. It's the same kind of story, just with different characters in a different place and everything, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. the other quick note I wanted to say really quick about stories, just because there's another connection. We talked about in a different episode, King Solomon. And 
in King Solomon, we talked about how he had these 72 demons and he put them in a bottle one time. And then in Aladdin and in a lot of different stories, genies are in containers. And the container that King Solomon put and he threw it into the sea, it shows up in a lot of different stories later on. So it also connects to religion in that way too, Judaism. But yeah, I just wanted to mention that because when I was reading, I was like, huh, look at that. There are very few stories that haven't been told. You just have to recognize them, right? Yes. Yeah. I know. That's the same way sometimes I think about music. I'm like, there's only Mm. so many notes. (laughs) How many combinations can we make before we run out? But we can do it. Yeah. But that's a good example of like with with different culture, right? But like mm-hmm. the same song can be sung by different artists, but they put their own lilt on it, right? And yes. and like sometimes what you're really looking for is those differences, those lilts, those that way of expressing a certain tone, right? Is it a cappella or is it with music accompaniment? And each one have difference, even though the meaning is the same. You yes. connect with one more than the other. Yeah, it's the same way. I'm, I like Outlander. I'm like really big I into love Outlander. Oh my god, I love, I love Outlander. Outlander. Oh my god, <laughs> Jamie, come for me. Um, yeah, like, <laughs> you know, oh my god. Yeah. Um, but I'm like they have, <laughs> I know. <laughs> they have like every the opening song. They have it. I found it like on iTunes. They have it like different versions. So they have the Caribbean one when they were in the Caribbean. They have oh, one. Yeah. Yeah, they have the Appalachian choral one. They have the French one. And every single one, it's the same song, but every single one sounds completely different. Yeah, and you connect with each one different. Mm-hmm. I really like the Caribbean one because it has drums in it. So it's interesting. So an ancestral connection there. So there's an emerging yeah. research. There's a researcher in Scotland who is a musical linguist. And so she studies mm. particularly the connection between linguistics and music. And she's come out with, and she's demonstrated at least, that the style style of music you find in cult, like classical, not classical music, but like cultural ethnic music. Mm-hmm. When you look at the tones and the type of music that is, is seen as being like pleasing to the ear and like that's the classical music of that particular ethnic community, mm-hmm. any ethnic community around the world. When you look at that, there's actually very similar tones to then accent and how people speak. Wow. And so what they're hearing, what she's postulating is that when you listen to, for example, Irish music, right? The fiddle, mm-hmm. very similar to how Irish accents are. Same with drums. Yes. When you listen to Yoruba, like Nigeria, mm-hmm. typical Nigerian, oh, hello and hello, welcome. Yes. That was more Indian, I apologize. But it's no, like very, it's pretty good. Actually. It's accentuated. <laughs> Each one is like a drum beat. It's very interesting, that, isn't it? So there's a lot of interesting research that, and it comes back to that psychology. We tend to talk how we hear because language was originally more this research in India about how some of the most ancient human languages were actually mimicking birdsong. Oh, wow. I thought that was very interesting when I heard that. That yeah. is cool. I th- you know, I've read that before because I forget where I was talking about this. Maybe on a different episode. Oh, we were talking about this on a different episode about singing. And mm. one of the theories about singing was that humans started singing because they heard like it could be birds or different animals making mm. noises. And then they started trying to mimic those noises and ended up being like oh this is actually fun they started making songs out of it that was one of the one of the theories about music so i thought that was really cool 
That's really it's the connections. It all comes back to relationship, right? What you just said then, it reminds me of how, like, Australian... I love Australian Aborigine culture. I think it's... Mm-hmm. And, of course, it goes back, like, 40,000, 50,000 years, right? Yes. So there's a lot of studies about how the oral storytelling of and spiritual traditions of those peoples, how when you look at the rituals, a lot of them are rituals around mimicking the movements of animals. Now, what that does is, first of all, it teaches children in and hunters in those spaces to watch very carefully the movement of animals in order to anticipate a move. So when a, an animal does a certain movement, you know that it's about to bolt. That yes. shows up in their religious ritual in honoring their ancestors and ancestor spirits who are the ancestors of those animals and so it fulfills various different cultural means and because it's ritualized it's going to be perpetuated from uh, down the culture because it's an important not only spiritual but also temporal it has meaning in different various different ways right and so yeah. when ethnologists i think western science is really catching up to what indigenous people really know yeah that they could tell like uh, some of those stories recount events that if you look about 5,000 years, there was a flood in a particular area of Australia. The stories that are told in sacred ritual in those areas retell that tale, right? Mm. So that, that oral history becomes literally a dynamic document. And so it's very, there's so many pieces that I think that we've lost in our literate culture, right? Yes. Oh my God. I could talk about it all day. (laughs) Oh yeah, I know. And it just like, and again, I'm not going to go on forever either, but there's, I watched this movie. It was called The Nightingale, I believe. Yes. And it was like very violent. So don't watch the movie if you don't want to see a lot of violence, but the movie itself is very good. There's a part where the, I think they're in Tasmania in that movie. That's where the, the setting is. And the indigenous person there the guy he does his whole ritual because he ends up being the last of his like clan and he does this ritual that he was like saying i like literally was crying during it because he was like i was my grandfather was supposed to do this with me but now everybody's dead so i have to do it to keep going and there's a lot of he makes a lot of different animal sounds but it's like a very just even watching it i know it's a movie but you like feel it. You're like, damn, this guy is doing this for his whole lineage because everybody was dead except him. Absolutely. Yeah, and it was like it was really powerful. It's a really good movie. There is also go ahead. That I think really speaks to then what part of this work is. Because mm-hmm. ancestor work for me is both it is both immediate, but it is also timeless. That's how yeah. I like to put it. So when I'm engaging with my ancestors and I'm engaging in those rituals, what we're doing is we're entering into a shared space. That's what spiritual, sacred ritual is for me. It's a shared space. Really, in in many ways, like I make this major point in the book, everything's about relationship. Everything's about communication too. And Mm -hmm. so when we are engaging in cultural ritual, we're not just doing things without purpose we're engaging in communication with the other side we're doing ritual we're performing ritual we're performing a role in the same way that we're we would speak 
Yeah. When we create altars, altars are not just for us, they're also for the ancestors. When I construct my various altars, all of the elements on there communicate something to the other side, whether it be, this is a safe space for you to be, this is a space for you to be, this is this is connecting with the cosmology so that you know that this is a space that you can only be, you can't be in my bedroom, you can't be in the mirror in the yeah, hallway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So ritual for me is about communication in this and encountering. And so in like story, you said before, when people get into listening story, they enter into a story. Ritual is the same thing. We enter into yes. ritual. We enter into tradition. And in those spaces, then our ancestors are living there too. And so it's not a mourning anymore. It's not yeah. a grief because I know that my ancestors are at my shrine. I can go to my shrine and sit there and connect with them. And yes, they're not here physically with me, but they're there very much spiritually. And we both engage in that ritual. Right? That's what I love about him. Yes. Oh my God. It's so great. <laughs> it seems uh, like it clicked something for you there. <laughs> say that again? I said that seemed like it clicked something for you there. Oh, 100. No, it was just like, I don't know. First of all, I just get like, whenever I feel like I get tingles all over my body. So just now I was like, Ooh, I don't know. I feel like that. I feel like that was all my ancestry. Me like, yes, this guy is amazing. This guy is right. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> oh my gosh. This has been so fun. Such a great conversation. I'm very grateful. Thank you for having me on. Yes. Thank you. So before we go, of course, Ben, tell us anything you want to plug or tell yeah. us about your book and when it's coming out. Because this is going to come out right. What day is your book coming out? So in the U.S., it's coming out on September 8th. Okay, this is coming um, out. This is coming out September 7th. So everybody order. Perfect. Okay. Yes, we're it's the middle of July right now, so it's a few months yes. until this comes out. But those who are listening in September, yes, my book comes mm -hmm. out on Friday. <laughs> and I, my book is called Ancestral Whispers, A Guide to Building Ancestral Veneration Practices. A lot of it is very personal for me. I use the experiences that I have had with my very spiritual traditions. I come from a non-prescriptive point of view, though. So this is not a book that is going to give you a ritual to do. It is not going to tell you how to build an ancestor shrine. It is not going to tell you how to worship or venerate your ancestors. What I do with this is it's in two parts, basically. The first is about worldview. Worldview is really important to me. Everything that I do in my spiritual life comes out of my worldview. And so a lot of the first four, four chapters is about, is about understanding your own beliefs. How do you see the ancestors? How do you see the world of spirit? How do you see the world and your relationship with it? The second part is then going chapter by chapter through the various elements of a living ritual practice. So it could be anything. I'll just take you through the list here. And, <laughs> and I apologize. If you're here bang, you're hearing banging, it's my cat who's desperately trying to get out of the room. <laughs> That's so fun. That, we, love our, we love animal friends on this podcast, so it's totally fine. <laughs> she's amazing. She's been along with a journey with me, and now, now she's desperately wanting to go out. Anyways, <laughs> let's go through the contents. So the first part is called The Living and the Dead. If you, if anybody who's listening to this wants, they can go to the Llewellyn website and look up the book Ancestral Whispers by Ben Stimson, and okay. they can read the first chapter for free, and they can oh, okay. see what the, so that, it, that gives you a taste of what the book's about. Put that we in the show about, notes too. 
Oh, perfect. Thank you. I'll send you the mm -hmm. link for it. So the okay. first section is about how do you define ancestor veneration? What is the connection between ven veneration and personal story? What is the connection between the community and personal ancestor veneration? What is the nature of the living? What is the nature of the dead? Understanding those beliefs and understanding how you even conceive who is dead and what makes them dead and why are they dead and where are they? That kind mm -hmm. of thing. In the second part, we talk about then forming a living practice. So I'm just, just basically give you a here. So the first chapter in that is just understanding what is an actual living practice? What is it? What does it look like? What does it impact in your life? What is the zones? How does it connect with your mundane life and so on? Mm -hmm. Then we talk about the physicality, creating shrines. How do you, the dead even come into your life? How do they come into your living space? What are the potential dangers of them being near the kitchen, for example, where you're mm. consuming living food? All of these different things. And point. if your readers are coming from any kind of ATR or traditional background, I think a lot of them will already know. But if for those, this book is really for people who are divorced from or are looking to build from scratch a tradition. Oh, I love um, that. So we're looking at then what is like the use of color? What is physical representations? Because some traditions use physical representations of ancestors. Some of them have prohibitions against. So exploring that for yourself. Um, mm -hmm. Talking about offerings, the use of, of ritual, how to communicate, whether it be through divination. We talked about divination before. How do you create a prayer for, for ancestors? How do you pray to other spirits on behalf of ancestors and so on and so forth? And then at the end, I talk about pilgrimage, because it isn't just about sitting in your house and communicate your ancestor shrine. A lot of people who are looking to connect with their ancestral story tend to want to go to those places. We've yeah. talked about what home is for us. For you, mm -hmm. it's Ghana, it's it's England, it's New Jersey, it's Jamaica. All of those places mm -hmm. are home. For me, it's Canada and the United Kingdom, right? And so yeah. what is actually going to the spaces that your ancestors dwelled in? Even if you don't know who your ancestors were particularly, you know that they at least were we're in a space at one point. So yes. what can you gain from going on pilgrimage to those places? And then, of course, conceptualizing what is pilgrimage versus just going on a vacay, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it's coming out in September 8th. I do have an online book launch. So if people want to follow that and join us, I do have a Facebook page and social media. It actually really helps authors if you go and like their page. So anyone who's listening to this, please feel free to go and follow my page. I'll be putting more stuff up there. And obviously also some of the other work that I do around ancestor work. The there's a lot of resources I've included in the back of this book too, mm -hmm. so that you can, this is really just a jumping off point and I don't hold your hand in this. I'm not going to show you every single thing. I'm, I ask a lot more questions in this than get you to do exercises. In the next book that I'm working on, which I've just submitted a proposal for, we're then moving from ancestors to the landscape around you and the spirits that exist there. In Lakumi, we have a, a saying, which is ancestors below, spirits, Arishas around, and God above. So it's really mm -hmm. then how does ancestor work? Because ancestor work can be a particular practice. What it shouldn't ever be is a lip service though. And unfortunately yeah. we see this a lot in the pagan community, in the neo-pagan community, yeah. is that we we and we start a ritual. Let's honor the ancestors for a minute and twenty-five seconds. <laughs> Okay, let's go and <laughs> invite the ancestors into your life 
figure out what a relationship, a living relationship with your ancestors could look like for you. Allow it to organically grow. I talk about cultural appropriation in this. I talk mm. about I talk about that connection point between being inspired, but also then what would make sense to your ancestors. Mm-hmm. If you really love Coco as a movie and you're really inspired by it and you build in a friender to your ancestors who have no idea what Mexican culture is and no idea what those symbols are, then they'll mm-hmm. be as confused. Even though you're sitting there communing with your ancestors, they'll be confused as fuck. So yeah, it's they'll like, be like, what? What are they? Like, we are Swedish. Yeah. <laughs> so then I talk about blending different things from mm-hmm. multicultural background like we do. Mm-hmm. What is it like to then intentionally bring different different elements in, like grillo, or if finding that right recipe of jalapa rice, right? Yes. Bring that in, and then serving that to ancestors who are English, who've never even had jalapa rice before. Yeah. What could that relationship, and part of that relationship then could be introducing your ancestors to each other, bridging those connections, right? So that's what the book is all about. I hope that it's going to look like really work with people. But it's a jumping off point. I really put you in the, like I do with therapy. It's a long therapy book, basically. That's what it is. <laughs> Which everybody's going to love because Everyone. we all need it. I know. <laughs> so we're fine. Oh, my gosh. So everybody, all of those links are going to be in the show notes. Ben's page and everything about his book will be there. But I just want to thank you again so much. This has been such a great conversation. I, oh gosh, you're just amazing. You're fantastic. I was looking forward to it. Like I said to you in private, I had come Mm -hmm. across your podcast before. When I was starting to put the publicity work in, I was looking at what some of my fellow authors, like some of the venues and podcasts. Mm -hmm. And so when you popped up on that, on that group that we're part of, I was like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I know who this is. I know when you were talking, oh, sorry. Sorry, no, because I, I think I actually saw, because I'm having Madame Pamita come onto my own podcast at some point, so I saw that you'd had her on a few months ago, and, and it was such a, a great interview, too. I highly recommend people go and listen to that one, too. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> Madame Pamita is so, she's awesome, too. Yes, I saw you had written, like, all these different things that you do about your, your degrees and your minors, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this person and me may become best friends. I was like, <laughs> like everything that we're I We're on like. Facebook together now, so. <laughs> So I'm like, great. I was like, oh my gosh, you're so interesting. Yeah, but uh, thank you again. This thank has been you. so great. So everybody, visit the link. So I'll be in the show notes. And again, this is Dying with the Divine. You can follow us on the socials, Instagram, Facebook. You can give us a good rating if you like the show. You can email me at Dying with the Divine Pod. And if you want to follow me, oh, Ashley, yeah. I'm at Sankofa HS. It's S-A-N-K-O-F-A-H-S. And Sankofa Healing Sanctuary on Facebook. This has been great. Thank you, Ben. And everybody, I hope you have a fantastic week. Go order the book right now because you're going to want to read all about this stuff. It's going to be so awesome. And I'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye.